0: Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Before we go to the panel, uh, I'd like to share with you some thoughts on democracy, civic involvement, and what these uh, institutions can produce in terms of a better uh, society. The word democracy itself is bandied around very loosely, and obviously it has different dimensions to it. It can be a very formalized democracy run by an oligarchy or a plutocracy uh, or an even authoritarian regime. It can be a modest parliamentary democracy. It can be a more deep democracy. It could be one that's more f- effective at the local level and, and compared to a national level. And In order to understand it, maybe it would be good to, to understand first why it's so critical. And the reason why everybody, almost everybody, around the world likes democracy uh, is because it is a functional way of organizing society to solve problems and reduce injustices and foresee and forestall perils on the horizon. It's probably the best mechanism uh, we've ever developed uh, in any culture. And if we see it that way, uh, it becomes less of an abstraction and more of, of a call to further inquiry and, and action. Uh, Richard Parker at Harvard Law School wrote a book called Hear the People Rule, where he interpreted the U.S. Constitution as having imposed on the government an affirmative duty to facilitate the civic energies and the political energies of the people. Our government does facilitate profit. It subsidizes, bails out, guarantees, uh, contracts with uh, corporations uh, to further their profitable state. But it's quite interesting to see how little it does, uh, even by way of campaign finance reform uh, or allowing people's votes to count all people, how little it does to facilitate the political and civic energies of people in their respective roles in a political economy, which are as voters, as workers, as taxpayers, as consumers, and as investors, or small savers, five important roles. And there's very little discussion of that. In fact, in most discussion on public policy, there's an assiduous uh, silent agreement among the discussants to avoid the issue of power, the issue of concentration of power and wealth. And it was Justice Louis Brandeis from our Supreme Court who said in the 1930s, and I quote him, we can have a democratic society or we can have the concentration of great wealth in the hands of the few, but we cannot have both. And the concentration of wealth and power, they often go hand in hand, is very pronounced in our country, uh, especially in the last 25 years, where the inequalities and disparities have become, at a statistical level, something you would describe a Central American country or a third world country. The top 1% of the richest people in our country have financial wealth equal to the combined financial wealth of the bottom 95% of the American people, just as one indicator. And so when we ask ourselves, how do we build a strong and deep democracy? This is a question that is almost never discussed in a political election, never discussed by political parties. They want to tell people what they stand for, however narrow and limited it is, but they don't want to tell people how they can become more powerful and more engaged in their respective roles in the political economy and this leads to a very low expectation level on the part of people if you ask people how can you how can you say that a certain elected official is doing a great job when you don't have any yardsticks other than the image projected by that elected official about how good a job he or she is doing, When we say that there is 75, 80 percent support for President Bush, what does that really mean? Well, right now it means uh, on the war against terrorism. That's the overwhelming image he is now projecting. But if you say, uh, what is the poll in terms of President Bush on health care, on consumer protection, on the environment, uh, then th- th- there are different responses in different levels. And needless to say, it's not going to be at 75 percent. Uh, percent. The poll-driven manufacture of public opinion is now a new controlling process in American politics. And the, the politicians react to the polls the way they cover themselves. You heard the mayor of Chicago saying he doesn't like to do that. But no transforming leader in an elected position can simply reverberate off polls that are very narrowly gauged in terms of the questions asked and very, very little supported by any kind of informed responder. so expectation levels are extremely important in the kind of politics we get. And when you see a lot of young people coming up to you and saying, I'm not turned on politics, my answer to them is to say, study history. If you don't turn on to politics, politics is going to turn on you in a very disagreeable fashion. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are expectation levels of our political leaders, business leaders, labor leaders, academic leaders, scientific leaders? And that puts a responsibility of some sort of time dedication on our daily routine, which we're often not willing to give, because we are in a routine. We mostly are in a routine. Most people who break through in pioneer areas really break through their routines not just intellectual routines, just routines of how they spend the day, day in and day out. Once expectation levels go up, then the question we ask ourselves is how do we develop civic motivation? How do we motivate ourselves to engage and participate? And how do we uh, motivate others to engage and, and participate? Otherwise, the public arena will be a vacuum which the rascals will move in to take over. Uh, Politics abhors a vacuum. And where do we get our uh, motivations from? Because otherwise, we'll go through life uh, being viewed as apathetic. And if we go through life feeling we're powerless, then we're going to have an attitude described as apathy, because they're different sides of the same coin. Civic motivation can come from uh, civic self-respect. We basically berate ourselves because we don't have enough of an expectation level of our own significance in life. We are being trivialized, we're being narrowly gauged, or we are being over-specialized, where we say, well, that's not my field, that's not my area of expertise. But when you're talking about citizenship, everybody has a ticket to admission to the citizen arena in a democracy. Motivation comes from looking at our past, the valiant leaders that helped build our democracy, that helped free the slaves, that helped give women the right to vote, that helped afford workers the opportunity to form trade unions and collectively bargain their standards of living and standards of justice. The people who brought us the populist progressive movement and all the reforms, many of which endure to this day, a hundred years ago, the people who fought the civil rights movement and the women's movement in the 20th century, consumer environmental movements, what were they up against? Well, they were up against enormous odds. The farmers and the workers in the 19th century and the women's suffrage and the abolitionists, they didn't have anywhere near the communication facilities we had. There was no electricity, no motor vehicles. There wasn't anything, not even faxes, not even emails. I wonder how they did it. They did it person to person. They went from farm to farm. They went from tenement to tenement. They went canvassing from house to house. And when you look back at what they sacrificed and what they risked, and then you look at what we're going to have to sacrifice and risk, if we feel sorry for ourselves, we're becoming excessively self-indulgent by comparison. Very motivating. The second area of motivation is just observing the world around us. We should be collectively ashamed that in a world at 2002 AD, we have the billions of people who are repressed and downtrodden and brutalized and semi-starved, without shelter, without any hope. More people died last year from tuberculosis and malaria than any other year in history even though we have extraordinary modern medical facilities and know-how to do something about it. But we're not attending to these matters. We're not attending to these matters. The environmental devastation is proceeding at a very rapid pace, affecting poverty and affecting the future of the world and affecting disease. And in one area after another, all over the world, we're seeing a gross gross unwillingness to apply the time, the talent, the resources of those who are capable of having them to those who are in great need. And that's if we have any civic self-respect, we then have to develop a civic dimension to our daily routine. We simply can't go through life thinking, looking out only for number one the third area of motivation, civic motivation, is what are we going to tell our children and grandchildren? When that 10-year-old at that height of inquisitiveness, and let me tell you, if it's a choice between having the White House Press Corps ask presidents questions or a 10-year-old, I'll take 10-year-olds any time. They ask very fundamental questions. And when they're sitting on the grandparents' lap and saying, what happened? What happened? Why why am I growing up in such a tormented world? What are we going to say to them? If we didn't have the time, we were otherwise predisposed? We were watching the second rerun of Cheers? That's pretty hard to look in the eye of a child who says, what is this world I'm supposed to grow up in? Once we develop the civic motivation, then we ask ourselves, how do we train ourselves? How do we develop the civic skills? Well, one way is to make sure our educational system provides opportunities at elementary, high school, and college to develop civic skills, to learn how to practice democracy. It's very, very hard intellectual work. Don't let anybody tell you that this is soft pedagogy. Einstein once said, physics is simple compared to politics.